At Highland, we're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is my loyal partner, Mike Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Always good, Mark. I'd like to announce that we have won an award for the longest-running podcast not sponsored by a mattress company, which I think is a major milestone. That's quite a gala. Like, I had fun. Like, I I was surprised. Like, when we were sitting there and we were just there for the dinner, I thought we were just going to be mentioned. But then, wow. I mean, the guest list was super exclusive, given that it consisted of the two of us and your mom. It's true. And the McDonald's staff was very accommodating. Yeah, I mean, they even let us in the playroom, which I thought was nice. Very nice. You know, those age limitations are borderline fascist anyway, so I'm glad they'd heard of my lawsuit. But even though we are masters in our own minds, it is the case that we have an erratum to issue. I think this is the first time I've been wrong since, I think, 1986. Uh, yeah, that's when I thought that girls were icky. That was the last time I was wrong. Yeah, I so- have marked on my calendar, so you are, in fact, correct. It yeah. is that one date. So when we were talking about Lords of Hellas, which was our feature game last week, we talked a little bit about how awkward we felt the Usurp special action was. And while we stand by that characterization, there's a number of things about Usurp that we still think is a little bit wonky. A helpful viewer pointed out that I had the rules uh, slightly wrong. Although having a glory token is a prerequisite for doing Usurp action, it does not cost the glory token. So if you have a glory token in a region, you can do the Usurp action over and over in that region within the confines of the other action requirements. We're going to play by the correct rules going forward, and if this substantially changes our opinion, we will, of course, let you know. So, But I like saying usurp. It is a cool word. It's one of the only words you can pronounce correctly. Usurp. So, to just to change things up this week, we had planned to talk about the Israeli-Palestine peace accord, but instead we are going to talk about board games for some reason. We're going to talk about games we played last week, we're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. Our feature game this week is a preview. This is our first ever preview of an unpublished game called Crisis at Steamfall, and we'll issue the necessary provisos for that. And our topic this week is the second of the two interviews I did when I was back in Massachusetts. This is an interview with game designer, game publisher, and game developer Chris Cheslick of Asmati Games. He had a lot of interesting things to say, and I hope you enjoy hearing it. So with all that said, let's talk about the games we played last week. Walker, what did you play last week? I'll go over the quick list, and then I'll just go over one couple that I played about. TI4, Forbidden Stars, Great Western Trail, Skull, Zaya, Codename, Scythe, Escape, The Curse of the Temple. It was a busy week. Yeah. So the first one, let's talk about Forbidden Stars. Oldie but a goodie, out of, out of print. It was a GW game published by Fantasy Flight Games. Unfortunately, I know there was expansions planned, but we'll never see them. At least this light eye. Unless, you know, they do a reprint, much like they're doing with Dracula. With WizKids. I don't know that Fury of Dracula is necessarily in the same category as Forbidden Stars. There are fan versions of the expansions up. People have done, you know, the Tau and whatever other races were supposed to be for 
Forbidden Stars. Have you looked at those at all? I have not. So you're you're a fan of Forbidden Stars, right? It is. I was what I was going to talk about was the fact that it uses a lot of unique mechanisms. So it's I think that's the only thing that's blocking it from the table all the time because you have to if you're having new players, it's a little bit of a steep learning curve to get them up to speed and just to you know refresh yourself back up when you want to play it yourself i think it's a little bit of a stumbling block to get to the table and every time we play it we wonder why why aren't we playing this game more because it's really a great game i've never tried it the battle system looks a little bit overcooked to my eyes but uh i'm vaguely interested in trying it's a huge upgrade from starcraft that uses the same mechanisms where it has all these different systems and everyone puts their orders in the system and it creates these stacks. Yeah, and first in, last out. First yeah. in, last out. So it's a really neat movement system. But the combat system, in my opinion, in StarCraft was even more painful than it is in Forbidden Stars. So, okay. So it's an upgrade from that. I really enjoy playing it. What did you play this week? I got to play a prototype called Dice Hockey, and I played it on Tabletopia. Now, keep in mind, I do not like playing prototypes, and I don't like playing games online. I don't like playing board games in digital format. So when I tell you that I was very, very, very impressed, and I really enjoyed my playing, that should really tell you something. Dice Hockey was designed by Artem Nitsipurov and the people at Wolf Designer. These are the people who put out Guards of Atlantis and uh, Warpgate, which is going to be released via Kickstarter in uh, in the upcoming months. And his design goal was to make basically something like Blood Bowl, but that didn't take two hours and was very simple and streamlined. He explained the rules to me in about three minutes, and I was being thick. And we played a game in about 15. It was lightning fast and really engaging. Still very rough. So who knows where it's going to end up or if it's even going to see publication at all. But I got to say, I was very, very impressed by this early version of dice hockey that we played. And I do not like sports ball. Uh, I am told that hockey is not a version of sports ball. It is another version of sport, but uh, it doesn't matter. I don't like it. Artie said he wanted my input because, you know, as a Canadian, I would have something to say about hockey. And indeed, halfway through the rules explanation, I indeed had to ask, so I noticed that there are five players on each team. Is that how hockey actually works? And there was this pause and he's like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Plus the goalie. Do you know what a goalie is? I'm like, I know what a goalie is. So... (laughs) Dice Hockey, early prototype, very enthusiastic, very eager to see where it goes. I will keep you posted. So I played a game of Ortis Regni. I'm a big fan of Ortis Regni. There are a number of listeners to the podcast that are huge fans of Ortis Regni, and my merely mentioning the game ought to keep them at bay for all of uh, two days or so, I think. So shout out to them. I was trying a new deck strategy, and it didn't really work very well, which is fine. Good. One of the great things about deck construction games like Ordis Regni is you can try new things. And the deck construction in Ordis Regni is so simple and so straightforward and so accessible that it really is uh, relatively painless to just completely change up your deck and try something new. We're going to be talking about Ordis Regni a little bit later on in the news because it's in the news, thankfully. So I had a great time with Ordis Regni and I'm looking forward to trying to introduce it to more people. I still haven't played it multiplayer in person. I played it multiplayer against AIs. I have deep misgivings. I, I know I say this about every primary two-player game that has a multiplayer mode. I said it about Mythic Battles Pantheon. I've said it about a whole bunch of other games. Like I have deep misgivings, but I'm willing to give it a shot. And then, of course, I try it, and then I say, yep, yeah, doesn't really work. Ordis Regni has player elimination, which is not ideal in <laughs> multiplayer games, but some people swear by it, so I'm interested in trying that in the future. And uh, any time to be able to play with the in-person beautiful components is always a plus. All right, a friend of mine picked up Zaya just the base game and I had played it a long time ago and he wanted to give it a try so I said I'd you know hop in to help with the rules and it was funny because he said the exact same thing I did when I played Zai it's like wow great components we could make a really good game with this (laughs) 
So Zaya is this great, you know, space expansion, sandboxy. You can deliver goods. You can fight each other. You can explore. You can do all sorts of things you want to. But in the end, I I just feel it falls apart in almost all of these aspects. It's still, I keep keep saying it falls apart. And then I say, oh, it's, but it's a great game. It, It is. It's one of these games where if you have a whole afternoon and you just want to sit around and chat and play something that's, you know, semi in depth, then Zaya is for you for sure. But the movement system just pulls me right out of the game. You roll a D6, you're in this interstellar spaceship that's zipping across the space, space and you can go one space. And it's just like, I, I didn't understand. I, I hear there's expansions that fix it, but, you know, if you need an expansion to fix your game, then why was it broken in the first place? I've played with the expansion, and I can say that the expansion modules, although they kind of address those issues, they're not going to satisfy people who didn't like them in the first place. I never had a problem with the movement system in Zaya, Legend of the Drift System, or in, in the expanded version. The problem I had was, and I, I have yet to see a game that really offers these kinds of options in this way work, when you have the option of trading, and you have the option of fighting, and you have the option of exploring, I usually find that the combat doesn't fit in very well. It just doesn't coalesce together as a neat little hole. And so a lot of these sandboxes that involve fighting never really satisfied me. And that was definitely my impression of of Zaya. I didn't like how combat worked. Especially since in most of these games, if you do combat successfully as a player, you just basically cause people to lose turns, which is not fun. Yeah, roll and move. Wow. In space. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why roll to move in space strikes you as so much worse than roll to move anywhere else. It just... It just seems odd where you're, where it's a game when, when you're doing space that, you know, you're doing warp speed and you're like covering vast distances and it's like, oh, I rolled a one. I guess I go one space. And it just seems odd. Sure. Thematic integration is one of those bizarre things. What breaks thematic immersion for one person won't necessarily bother someone else. That, that, that in particular never really bothered me. So we both played Skull a couple times. Uh, we also played Skull back to back with Cockroach Poker two bluffing games that are very, very, very stripped down and very pure, one after the other. I had played both of these before, so had you, but this was the first time where, and there was some overlap in the two groups where we played both one after the other. So between Skull and Cockroach Poker, which is your preferred sort of streamlined bluffing game? I think I prefer Skull. Just the average, just the, just the sussing out of the number to, in, sorry, let's go, let's talk about In Skull. In Skull, you just simply have four cards Three are safe and one is the skull. Everyone starts with one card down on the table and you you either bid a number and you have to flip up that many cards. Hopefully no one has, and the ones you pick hopefully are a skull. You always have to start with your own or you put down another card and it keeps going around the table until one person bids and then it goes around a bidding and whoever bids the highest has to start flipping over cards, starting with all of his own and then he can pick whatever cards he wants. As soon as you get a skull, he's out. If he gets up to the number that he bid, then he wins. I'll tell you what I like about Skull. What I like about Skull is the psychology of bluffing when someone has bid. Because as you say, you have to start by flipping over all your own. And so the inference then is, well, obviously if someone's bid, then they haven't played any Skulls because they know they have to flip over their own. But they might have just bid so as to draw out somebody else to encourage them to bid too high and or to convince them that they didn't have any Skulls in front of them. That part I really like. Everything else I prefer cockroach poker immensely because skull has this strange dynamic where once somebody has been bidding aggressively it dominates the entire table 
It sets the tempo of what, what is going to happen in the entirety of the game. And, you know, that's fine. Pretty much any gamer is going to be more aggressive than I am. I'm extremely conservative at such games. So the fact that Andrew would win at Skull is, is beside the point. It's just that if somebody at the table, who might or might not be named Walker, refuses to play any cards and always bids, and will gladly bid five when there are only six cards on the table every time... Well, if that's the dynamic, then that's what's going to happen every time. And it's just a question of, is somebody willing to make the crazy bid that Walker wanted to make before Walker can get there, forcing Walker to bid something that is truly mind-rendingly awful or to pass? Or are they just going to let Walker run the table, for good or ill? Again, this is not necessarily a winning strategy. It's just the strategy that's going to determine the tempo of the game. Whereas in Cockroach Poker, I find, generally speaking, someone might be on the short end of the stick for a while, just unable to get guesses properly. But usually there's someone at the table that's willing to pass cards along, and that's a sort of a safety valve for, for that person who's getting picked on to, to, to get out. And so Cockroach Poker feels to me like everyone's a little more involved. The game is going to go at a slightly more deterministic pace, which for some, obviously, is going to be a downside. But the benefit of having Cockroach Poker, though, is, as as we discovered just in half a second thought, you can make a copy of Skull with your Cockroach Poker cards in roughly five seconds. Yeah, it worked out great. And that's why I like both of them. Like, I explain Skull in, like, 15 seconds. Same with Cockroach Poker. Same with another game I played, Codenames. They're just fantastic games to introduce people. And they all have, like, hidden levels to the depth, right? especially with cockroach poker and and skull just like voice inflection or the way you speak the way you pass cards i i just love that type of game or those little aha moments when you realize the actual that there's actual tactics in cockroach poker about passing somebody a card when they've got three showing or those little psychological bits about skull when well, that person is bid, does that mean that they have no skulls or what? Or trying to suss out whether someone has lost their skull over the course. Yeah, these games, all three of them, Codenames is is a very different type of game. But in terms of the fact that Skull and Cockroach Poker are pure bluffing games, they're very, very cheap, extremely easy to explain and go up to a large number of players. I'm I'm thrilled that that Cockroach Poker has, has caught on in the local group. I'll gladly play Skull, but as I say, I prefer Cockroach Poker. And they're they're really beautiful, beautiful games that are not just about social psychology, but have lots of social psychology. This is true. So what is it that you prefer about Skull? I think I like Skull better just because it sets up much faster and it's a lot more basic. It's just, you know, there's no like, and it's a much shorter game or essentially could be a shorter game. I can see where Skull, if played without me, (laughs) (laughs) could lead to, you know, having too many cards on the table and, and, and take much longer than it should. But just the quick, you know, Four cards, bid or pass or play, just seems it'd be, it's a lot smoother than Cockroach Poker. Fair enough. Cockroach Poker is an incredibly simple, very straightforward game, and Skull is about half as complicated as exactly. Cockroach Poker is. That's fair. What else did you play, Walker? All right, so I played Escape, Curse of the Temple, and I just want to talk about it because it's much like Project Elite. You're rolling dice very quickly, and, it, and they really felt very similar. I liked Escape. You're putting down tiles, you're rushing through, the gong goes off, you got to rush back, you're trying to go through the temples, remove your curses, and you can lock dice. It's kind of a neat mechanism where if you roll one symbol, then some dice are locked. You can unlock them yourself or someone can run to your, you know, run to your room to help you. And the fact that it's on a timer, it's 10 minutes and the game's over and there's all sorts of different expansions and modules for it. I think it's a neat little starter game for sure. I also like the zombie version. Usually the zombie version is just a throwaway 
add on to something. But Escape Zombie City has a couple of levels of elaboration. It's still a very, very simple game. And then you get to pile in in a van and drive over zombies, which is always nice. That's always a good feeling. Yeah, it's always a plus. What else you got on your list? Got to try 878 Vikings Invasions of England again. As I commented last time, I really wanted to try it again as the English because I played as the Vikings. And it is indeed very, very different as the English. Very brittle, very low numbers of forces, very difficult to mount an offense. You're usually benefiting from the defense. And it was still really fun. The asymmetry is so huge that it really does provide a different experience when you're playing the different factions. I'm uh, getting a little bit more concerned about the influence of luck in the game because you have a random activation order, a random draw deck, and random battle die results, which uh, I believe was pointed out by Walker, but I have difficulty believing it because it sounds like a good observation, and yet he was the one who made it, so it's all very... I'm very conflicted about that. I'm, I, I, I hear it's English you're speaking right now, but none of it's making sense to me. Right. So I did see some outsized influence of battle die results in a couple of fights where the outcomes were a little strange, and that didn't make me feel super good about a lot of what was going on, but... For a game of its complexity and for a game of its length, you can do a hell of a lot worse when it comes to dudes on a map. It's very straightforward and accessible, and I do like team games. So I'm going to tr- I'm gonna keep trying it. I think it's, I'm going to keep getting it to the table. I, I'm a little bit dubious now about some of the expansion modules because, again, if, if the virtue is simplicity, I don't know that I want to lord on other rules. It also seems like some of the expansions might make victory an all-or-nothing proposition. Like, if you have an alternate victory condition for a faction, but the only way they can exploit it is by pursuing that to the exclusion of everything else. I'm not sure you've really added texture or nuance to a game. It's just you, you force someone down a different path. At any rate, I'll talk about them when I have a chance to try them, but the, certainly the base game is uh, still very fun, so I'm, I'm glad uh, to I'm glad I was able to try 878 Vikings again. That's what I'm trying to do more when we're when I'm looking at these games is is trying to suss out what I'm getting out of the game for the what it's trying to give me in the time space that it's allocated. Right? Am I getting out what I need to get out? Absolutely. All right. So let's get on to the news and why it doesn't matter. I talked about Ordis Regni before. Ordis Regni is on Kickstarter. Strangely enough. As t- time of publication, it's got nine days left on Kickstarter. You can get the base game plus both expansions for $49, which is redonkulous. The base game retailed for 45 which was itself absurd. In terms of sheer components, we're talking about, I would I would say that they, they could easily retail for upwards of 150 and it's, it's being sold for 49 There's a bit of a caveat. Number one, it's only available in the U.S. and Canada, and shipping is, is a little steep. And number two... It's not actually being run by John Sudbury or John Sudbury Games, who are the original publishers. It's being run by Dan Yarrington of Game Salute and Ship Naked. And I don't want to get into the details. If you want to do some research on Mr. Yarrington's past business practices, by all means. I've never been burned by Ship Naked or Game Salute, although I know a lot of people who have. I'm still kind of angry at Game Salute about the way they've been handling the Shadow of expansions, but that's a separate issue entirely. At any rate, uh, they're also, they've also got a new playmat, which is a little bit strange given that the original game had a whole bunch of variant playmats for really substantially different variant modes. None of those are being offered for sale, but they've got a new playmat which has no gameplay effects, but it is just sort of a, a neoprene playmat, which a lot of people really like. I don't, I'm, I'm perfectly indifferent. So if you missed Ordis Regni when it was available... The web store has been down for a while, and John Sudbury has been incommunicado. This might be your last chance to get it. If this is very successful, and or if Mr. Sudbury returns to his quixotic game design process of delivering beautiful games with incredible uh, design work behind it at far too little money, then maybe this this could prompt a revival and new stuff could 
could show up or a lot of the old variant playmats could show up again. That would make me personally very happy. But as I say, if you are interested in getting Ordis Regni and have been lamented the fact that it seemed to be out of print, there is a window now, so go take advantage of it if you're inclined. I had to scrape around for my news this week. Tokyo Game Market was on. So there are all sorts of cool games. I didn't go in-depth into any of them, but there was quite a few very interesting ones. So if you wanted to go to Board Game Geek and check those out, very big things coming out of Tokyo. And my only other thing is like sort of a guilty pleasure because the more I see it, the more the, it's a very juvenile game. It's called Splat Attack. It's on. I thought you were going to say Starship Samurai. No, it's on. It's on Kickstarter. It's a Nickelodeon Splat Attack. <laughs> and it will it will bring you back to old cartoons. They've got the Rugrats on there. They've got uh, Teenage Ninja Mutant Turtles. They've got Cat Dog. Ren and Stimpy, there's going to be all these old-time oh, wow. figures, and like there's this weird puzzle mechanism, and it's a food fight, and I, I, I'm going to look into it more, but it, it might be interesting. Who knows? <laughs> Last thing that caught my eye was uh, Reiner Knizia seems to be up to his old tricks again. Reiner Knizia, uh, a few years ago, used to spend a lot of time just spinning off previous designs in new and interesting ways. So whether it was things like Raw the Dice Game, which was very interesting, 17 different variations of Celtus, all of which I would like to stress are very cool. I'm a huge fan of the Celtus system and all the various expansions that, that they did. This actually reminds me I should try to get those to the table again soon. But now he's returning to Lost Cities and he's making a, a version of Lost Cities with auctions in it, which seems overdue because Reiner Knizia is arguably the king of auctions and he liked to slap an auction in there. Everything. And while I complain that lots of, especially decades ago, designers used to slap in auctions just to balance things that they that they couldn't otherwise balance, Reiner Knizia throws in an auction because he's really good at auctions. So this is, Lost Cities Rivals is going to be a Lost Cities game where you acquire your cards in a somewhat Raw-like auction system, which is great because Raw's in my top 10. Raw's a brilliant game, and if you haven't played it, you're living a lie. So I'm looking forward to Lost Cities Rivals. It's possible that I'm going to take another look at the component manifest. It might be possible to mock up a copy with existing Lost Cities cards that I have and some uh, some some money. So I might do a, a sort of an early preview of it that way uh, on the DL, which I'll then tell all you about. So I guess it's not really on the DL. I, I should really learn subtlety. It's like I'm just shouting into a can, right? No one can hear me. No. Yeah. I have two bit two bits of uh, so very wrong news. Once again, the contest you have till June the first to for your massive darkness full Kickstarter pledge. Listen to episode twenty five for the details. It's also on the Board Game Geek Guild and the uh, the Book of the Faces. Yes, the, the Book uh... of Faces. It's in there as well. I that was a lot of blood I had to lose for that, but it was worth it. You know to have these. You know, second bit of news. Uh, as per requested, Mark has promised that he will upload an episode with all of my parts edited out. So for those who are sick of my voice, you will have your own episode that will just have Mark. So there you go. Bastards. If you're going to make a joke, at least make it obvious that it is a joke. There are enough people on the interwebs who are sufficiently convinced of my megalomania and personality defects that might actually take that seriously. So yes, I don't listen to the episode, so you probably have already edited me out, out of most of them already. So there you go. Yeah, the amount of blood, sweat, and tears I put into this, and you can't even be bothered to to listen. This is this is crazy. Anyway, so let's move on to our feature game. Our feature game this week is Crisis at Steamfall. This was designed by Tom Stasiak at Beautiful Disaster Games, and it is currently on Kickstarter for two more weeks at time of this publication. 
Tom Stasiak and Beautiful Disaster put out Assault on Doomrock and its expansion, Doompocalypse, which I still think is one of the very, very top-tier co-op adventure combat games. It was very clever and did a, very, uh, a number of interesting things. Crisis at Steamfall is a steampunk-themed adventure game of exploring a city built atop alien technology, because that could never go wrong. And what's fascinating about it is that it's both cooperative and competitive. Now, before we go into too much detail about the game itself, let's, let's just talk a little bit more about briefly about what we're doing here. A prototype copy was sent to me by Tom Stasiak in Beautiful Disaster, and we've we played a number of games on the pre-production copy. So we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about components, obviously. We, we can talk about art design. But we played with non-final rules, non-final components, and we're assured that there's going to be lots more stuff in the game itself. And it's also the case that we don't really know how or whether the game is going to change fundamentally in direction. Partially as a result of that and partially as a result of it being a preview, we're not going to necessarily give it the full review treatment that we do in some other games that we've played many, many times and been out for a while. Uh, so keep all that in mind. You are, however, going to get our honest opinions because although we did get a, uh, a preview copy, we are still going to give some editorial review and we were not compensated in any way other than the aforementioned copy itself. So with that in mind, why don't you give a brief rundown about what one does in Crisis at Steamfall? In Crisis at Steamfall, you are creating your little engine. You're changing your actions up. You're adding a new action that you can do to your table every turn. You're moving around the city. You're collect in the competitive mode. You're collecting civilians to help you out. In the competitive mode, those civilians that were turned evil, you're now defeating them, stopping them from destroying the city. And you have a total of nine actions to do for the entire game. I think for most, I think it's almost every game mode, you're only doing three turns. And in each turn, you're doing three actions. So the, in, your, in the entire game, you're doing all but nine turns. And that is Crisis at Steamfall. So let's talk about this activation system, because I do think it is kind of neat. Uh, you do only take three, well, you call them actions. I would instead say activations, because in each activation, you get to do a whole bunch of stuff. There could be as many as four or five different sub-actions within each given activation. And indeed, what those are is largely up to you. The way that it works is you select a column. And every time you get to activate, you add something to that column. You have these little chits that represent the various actions. And so you get to customize what your activations look like. Some people at the end of capping off a lot of move would like to be able to pick something up. Some people would like to be able to do a little bit of everything. You know, walk one space, pick something up, put out an upgrade, do some combat, or something along those lines. So that part is really neat. It's really straightforward. It's clean. It's nice and helps with the character differentiation because each character starts with a different set of tokens both on their board and available for future upgrades. So that part I think is clever. I agree with everything you just said, except for the fact that at the end of the day, they are just picking something up or moving a space, right? When you're creating something like this, it would be much more interesting if you're like pulling in, you know, special actions or something that's unique or, or exciting. This is you know, what you would normally do as a person, you know, you get to step one more space or you get to reach down and pick something up or you get to do things that you think you just normally do, right? You're building. What this on thing. earth are you? Look, 
I was with you for a second, but now you completely lost me. Like, in a normal activation, what you might do is you might go into some sort of shady, dark alley populated with gangs, and that is represented by game effects. Then you might do some business with some steam broker, which you then get this steam that you then use to power your fantastical devices. And then you use your your your, your big gorilla sidekick to strong-arm some sky girl into following you so that you can complete her personal goals and get points. Like, I don't I don't quite understand the, the gist of your objection here. You are doing those things, but I mean the actual, we're talking about the building of your character sheet. Oh, sure. That part itself, the fundamental engine, the, the core that drives all these activations, yeah, is reasonably straightforward in very much the same way. And I'm going to be comparing this game to Mage Knight a couple of times, actually, because I think there's some similarities. Very much like in Mage Knight, if you play a card sideways for, you know, a point of movement or a point of influence or something, I don't think it would be reasonable in that context to say, oh, but these are things you could do in real life. True. But so this would be like playing all your cards sideways. Okay, so let's talk about the character differentiation then, right? Right. Because, yes, the core action engine itself just generates a bunch of icons which you then spend later on in in the turn but each character also comes with three unique cards well at at for now three unique cards that might go up or down that determines the fun you know the fun their fundamental strengths and weaknesses about how they either pursue victory points in the competitive version or how they can help people out in the cooperative version so for example if you play as the character who's basically poison ivy but properly dressed you spread your influence throughout the city by diffusing this the the sort of uh, controlling chemical and then you use that to ex- to be able to either fight or manipulate citizens all throughout the city it also helps your allies in the cooperative version if they're standing in this this sort of miasma it also allows them to score victory points if they concentrate the miasma properly so the the character differentiation yeah it primarily comes in through these unique cards yeah for sure and you got the guy that has the elixir that creates all sorts of zombies you have the guy that you know manipulates this cool mist that goes around that he can teleport back and forth from and like you said you have the girl that rides the giant gorilla with a bowler hat there's definitely a lot of theme and the the way he's made every character different is definitely a great asset to the game. Because I'll admit, when I first saw, when I first took a look, when I was reading the rulebook at the different character placards with their starting icons for, for their action generation, I was a bit concerned as well that there wasn't going to be a whole heck of a lot of character differentiation because I love character differentiation in games like this. I love that kind of asymmetry. But the character differentiation is huge. It's massive. They're, they're, it's like each of the four different characters has four different point engines built into them that they can exploit in the competitive game or four different engines to help progress in the cooperative game because, again, each of the three unique cards that people have have a cooperative version and a competitive version so since you brought up all of these things you can do i just want to bring up the fact that you only have nine actions in order to get all of these things done so i I felt as though even though the game took a long time it seems as though you could never actually get everything done that you wanted to I agree to a certain extent. In the cooperative game, I think that actually the timing worked out pretty well. Because in the cooperative game, what you need to do is you need to knock out some pylons, that uh, pylons of doom, of course. You have to knock out all the pylons and then survive to the end of the third round. And I thought that the timing worked out pretty well. Because we knocked out the pylons, uh, the second pylon, during the third round, and then it was just a question of surviving this siege. So that was fine, because within a given activation, again, it's not just the icons that you're generating on your placard. It's a whole bunch of other stuff that you're generating through your cards. But I agree with you that some things feel too restrictive. A lot of the movement feels a lot more cumbersome than it needs to be. 
again, this is reminiscent to me of Mage Knight. Sometimes in Mage Knight, just walking a couple hexes over feels more expensive than it should be. It all shakes out kind of okay in the end. And that's true in Steam, Crisis at Steamfall as well, but I'm not a huge fan of how limiting it feels that way. You know, you've given me this city to go around and explore. I don't want to feel like I'm going to be spending, you know, 50% of my effort just getting to the district in question. It's also the case, it's really hard to get your items out. The way you play items most of the time is a certain kind of action, and that action is very rarely represented in your token mix. And so as a result, even if the game is giving you lots and lots of these great item cards that are really, really cool, you're not really going to be able to use them much. Exactly. And if you do get them out and you get to use them once, then it's going to take you a while to get them charged up again and then having to try to use them again. It, like I said, you only have nine actions in order to do all of this. So let, uh, let's talk a little bit about the items, though, because one of the reasons why I feel like it's too hard to get them out is because I want to play around with them more. In Crisis at Steamfall, there are a whole bunch of different items that do a whole bunch of different things. There are weapons, there's armor, there's trickery stuff, there's, there's, there's all manner of crap that influences the game state and buttresses your, your parsimonious selection of actions. And that's one of the reasons why I'm not really worried about the fact that your actions are relatively parsimonious, because there's all this extra stuff on your starting items and in your, your later items that you can manipulate. However... It doesn't stop there because many items, if not most, can be upgraded. They can be upgraded in terms of their power supply and they can be upgraded in terms of their follow-on effect. So you don't just have, you know, your alien weapon. You can have your steam-powered alien weapon of insight or your crank-powered alien weapon of doom or what have you. And that's really neat. And I love it when you're able to get these things together and, and set out this awesome item that has now been juiced up and so it has these great additional effects. But it's really expensive to get there. Getting the cards is okay. When uh, Generally, I think overall, and this is, this is more of a design preference, if you're going to have too many cards and too few actions, that feels more painful to me than if I have too few cards and too many actions. Not that I want actions to go to waste, but when I draw a card, I want to be able to think, oh, this is really great, I'm going to be able to do something with this, rather than have a hand of five cards figuring, yeah, I'm never going to bother. I'm never going to be in a position to get these uh, to hit the table. It plays itself off as this adventure game, but it seems more like just a resource manipulation game. I see. So is that partially in how the theme manifested itself to you? or No, just in what you were doing. It seemed like you were spending more time manipulating your resources than you were uh, exploring the city. Fair enough. I do quite like, though, how involved the activations get. That's probably just a, 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 a difference in play preference. And indeed, once you get to a position where you're dealing with managing your activations, managing your starting items, managing your energy, and possibly managing some, some additional items that you have, and then maybe a civilian or two that's following around that gets special powers, there's a lot to parse. There's a lot of information going on, a lot of clever plays to be made, and a lot of decision-making and trade-offs to, to happen. And that, I think, is the strength of the game. But it's also one of its weaknesses. Because to me, Crisis at Steamfall, its biggest shortcoming, and this has been present in all the games that I've played, is the downtime is killer. Because here I am, sitting here, managing all my different cards, trying to remember that, okay, this item I picked up over here can interact with this other thing that I've got, and maybe I need to go to this district and do all these other things, etc. And given that in Crisis at Steamfall, even in the cooperative version, there's not a whole heck of a lot of player interaction... I don't have anything to do while my neighbor to my right is managing all this stuff. 
and is, is, you know, figuring out all the ways to do things. Again, it reminded me a lot of Mage Knight, because when you're playing Mage Knight, you don't have much to do while, while the other players uh, messing around with this. That's one of the reasons why I would never recommend for anyone to play Mage Knight with three or more players. Maybe three if they were all super, super down with the game. But the same thing is true of Crisis at Seamfall. I, I found that the best player count is two, because I played it solo. Playing solo is not particularly engaging precisely because the amount of detail and specificity about each character is substantial. And when you play solo, you're expected to play two different characters at the same time. And I'd never want to play two characters in Mage Knight at the same time. Not just because it's managing two decks of cards, but because it's just the sheer detail of what you're expected to manage. I suffered from a bit of information overload when playing Steamfall solo. Uh, but at least I didn't have any downtime. So I think the ideal player count for Steamfall is two. But even then, the downtime can get a little bit rough. Yeah, much like Mage Knight, you can plan out your whole turn in advance, but you forget, if you forget that one thing that you know, oh, I didn't, I can't generate this energy quite the way I thought, then you know it all breaks down and your turn is now much longer than it should be. And therefore, there's almost no player interaction in Mage Knight or Crisis at Steamfall. So like you said, the theme, let's talk about the theme. The theme is, is very well and it's there and the art on the cards is very nice. It really pulls you in. Like you said, you have the... The girl riding the gorilla and the guy that goes around turning all the civilians into zombies. Lucius, yeah. Lucius. He's very interesting and all the items, it's very steampunkish feel and how you can make, you said, like you said, you can combo the items. They all have these like interlocking mechanisms that they can only fit together a certain way. So in that part of the game, I think he really pulled it off. It really um, sort of pulls into the game that way, even though there are other mechanisms that pull you out. It's amazing that in a game with this much downtime and this much information to manage that it still really, really feels like the sort of uh, steampunk mad science game that it was designed to be. I played a number of games that are suppo- that are supposedly steampunk in nature, and they all felt like various vanilla Euros, and some of them were good and some of them were bad, but no game I've played other than Crisis at Steamfall has really felt like I was cobbling together these very steampunky, nightmarish inventions. It's all very dark. It's a it's a dark version of steampunk, but it's also also darkly comic. Again, like I said, you can have a a, a winch powered alien weapon of doom, and that that that's just kind of cool. And I made it. Like I, I collected the parts and I put them together, and it was all very uh, full of effort. And you know, I collected all the energy, and I'm doing all these terrible things. And it's really neat. And it when you are completing the specific character-specific point generation engines, it really does feel unique. You don't ever really lose sight of the sort of thematic application of these things. When you're running around as Lucius making zombies, you feel like you're making zombies. You don't feel like you're just getting a point. When you're threatening somebody with the, the gorilla, you feel like you're really threatening somebody, even though you're just generating some resources. So in terms of how successfully it communicates that theme, I think Crisis at Steamfall is excellent and I really do think it's probably the best steampunk game I've ever played in terms of communicating a steampunk atmosphere. Having spoken with the designer, Tom Stasiak, he is trying to look at ways to streamline the gameplay as the, uh, you know, before the, the game hits press. I don't have any details about what the current theories are, though. I Again, I think that's a strength and a weakness of the game. It's a strength because there is indeed a lot going on. This is not a light adventure romp like, for example, City of Kings was. This is more in-depth. It's much closer to things like Mage Knight. My final thoughts on Crisis at Steamfall is I don't think you get out of it what you put into it. There's a lot of busy work. There's a lot of things going on. I think it needs to be worked on a little bit more, in my opinion. 
It seems to be very fiddly in some parts and a lot of busy work, in my opinion, for what you get out of it. I agree with a lot of your criticisms. Let me just briefly summarize again the things, the things that I think are great. The fact that a relatively simple set of core rules governs both co-op and competitive, I think is very impressive and very neat. The activation system is neat, although not particularly flavorful as far as things go. The character differentiation is great in all that extra stuff. The items are great. The upgrade system is great. And the 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 amount of theme that is communicated through the game is is absolutely wonderful. But it is too hard to get items out. It's awfully difficult to move around the map. There's a huge quantity of downtime and not a whole lot of player interaction. The good news is, I will say this, I am reasonably optimistic and I am hopeful that that things are going to progress because there are some things that you can change from a core design. You can streamline things. You can make things a little bit more straightforward. You can facilitate gameplay in, in shorter turns. You can't, after you've already got a relatively far advanced prototype, inject things like theme or wonder or... Or those 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 little bits of fun and aha moments. Those are really hard to shoehorn in. And despite the fact that I agree with you that it's a little too long and a little bit too much work, the novelty and those nice little moments of getting your character to work the way they're supposed to work and getting a really, really neat, fully upgraded item out are sufficiently cool that if they can preserve those elements, and indeed they're going to preserve all the lovely art assets and they're going to preserve all the, the, the great theme and the humor that's in the game, if they're able to get the turns down, you know, 10, 20, 30% shorter, get things moving a little bit faster, then I think you're going to have a real winner, honestly. Yeah, there's a lot of good parts there. But like I said, just I think it's a little too fiddly. And I really like how you build your character. But then when I think about it, in the end of the day, you're going from, you know, being able to move two squares to three squares or being able to, you know, go from not picking something up to picking something up. And it just seems like such a basic action that it, it, it just is not fulfilling at the end of the day. So that's our early preview of Crisis at Steamfall. I'm, I'm somewhat optimistic about its potential. Go ahead and check it out on Kickstarter. Don't necessarily take our word for it. We will update you if there have been developments on this score. So with that in mind, let us move on to our topic for the week, which is my interview with Chris Cheslick of Osmati Games. Standard provisos apply. Uh, Chris is a personal friend of mine, and we're going to be talking about his life as a game publisher, a game designer, and as a game developer. Hope you enjoy. So, Chris, thanks very much for sitting down with me. Hello. Why don't you just list your bona fides for the audience who don't know you? So, uh, I have made many of the most important games in existence, such as Win, Lose, or Banana. We didn't play Tessus at all. And probably games that you actually care about, like uh, working on innovation with Carl Chuddick. And the recent One Deck Dungeon series, which uh, is probably our biggest breakthrough game of the past few years. So you've done all three of the major roles. You've designed, developed, and published. Yes, we do everything here. So what are you most proud of? Given that you have, so your career has been pretty long, as far as this this little industry of ours is concerned. When did you publish your first design? So the first thing we did was Gold Thief back in two thousand and five, which is ancient history in game design terms. Ticket Absolutely. Ride was still the best game ever. Like, everyone was still used to Catan and all the, the classics, and nobody had dreamt of deck building. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. So what are you most proud of over your career? Uh, so the biggest thing that I'm proud of is what we were able to do with innovation, I think, um, which was taking this mountain of card ideas and refining it into a gem that I would still play anytime. Like, it is, of all of the games that I've made, innovation is the one I will play anytime, anywhere, um, and thankfully, there's a couple places we can do it online, uh, which make that much easier. 
but um, yeah, no, that that's been my biggest personal success. So let's talk a little bit about innovation. So a lot of your, both your uh, design and development work has been with Carl Chuddock, who's the, I believe, the only credited designer of innovation on the box. Correct. But you did a lot of the development work. Yeah, so um, Carl obviously had all of the ideas for the game and uh, came to me with, at that time, I think the game had 200 cards just for the base set. And they were all these cool things. They were all uh, civilization technologies or ideas. Innovations is what we wound up with, because back then it was called history. And what I helped him do was refine the mechanics and, you know, balance out the individual cards. Because they were still pretty crazy back then. <laughs> and So crazier than the published version. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which is already pretty crazy. Yep. Um and I think I think it came up good. It was a great collaboration. I think that game would not exist in its current form with either of us missing, certainly. And you've also co-designed other things like Flowerfall. Yeah. <laughs> the criminally underappreciated gravity game. I know. I, I miss Flowerfall. Flowerfall, um, Carl had this idea of, you know, what happens if you just drop cards from the, the sky. And it's a cute little game that, you know, we sold a bunch of, but I think it did everything it could. Well, I mentioned I mentioned it because it serves as kind of a bookend to the kind of design process that you've had, either with Carl, Kyle, Carl specifically or in general. Innovation was a relatively protracted development process by necessity, mm-hmm. whereas Flowerfall, as I recall, the initial idea to first tested prototype was five days. Oh yeah, I mean uh, that and Red Seven were the two that just sort of popped out of nowhere and were instantly ready to print. Um, Red 7 had a little bit more protected development where we realized the first idea wasn't quite done and we had to tweak around some of the card color powers. But yeah, Flowerfall just sort of blossomed immediately. Dear into, Lord. Yeah. <laughs> that was not okay. We are in the land of puns and it is, it's going to be a rough ride. Okay. Everybody. So Innovation has now seen four expansions, mm-hmm. arguably four different editions. Yeah. And... <laughs> yes. <laughs> Some more faithful to the design than others, let's say. Right. And is, does it have a future? Are there going to be more sets going forward? Uh, I don't know. We sort of think we're done, but we thought we were done after the first two. Mm. And then we just had more ideas. Uh, Carl came to me with um, Cities a few years back, and we sort of sat on it because I wasn't sure quite how to make it interesting enough to be a whole expansion. And then... Just before we did Deluxe, he came to me with the idea for Artifacts, and I'm like, oh, that sounds neat. And oddly enough, the two expansions that came later were more of the simpler ones that Mm. if I was showing somebody innovation now, I would say start with the base set, then go to Cities or maybe Artifacts, and then go to Echoes and Figures, because they're actually much more complex. Echoes is two expansions in one, and that... You know, we didn't know better back then. <laughs> we put everything in there, and uh, it was a little bit too much for most people to handle and enjoy. So we'll talk a little bit more about your most recent successes with uh, One Deck Dungeon in just a moment. Uh, but I'd just like to ask, since you know we're talking about innovation, which I think everyone can agree, both in terms of market reception and in terms of core design, has been very, very successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have the biggest regret you'd like to talk about? With innovation or with... No, just just in your career being a a designer, a publisher, a developer. Um, A few of the games that we didn't really have a budget for 
art and graphic design, you know, back when we were smaller, uh, I think we could have done a better job presenting. So that includes the initial version of innovation, which was frankly done with zero budget at all. And it was done to be completely utilitarian. Uh, hey, there's a whole story with the yellow version, but that's, uh, that's an entire podcast. Um, but on top of that, we had Fealty, which was cute design, but probably not modern enough to give it as much uh, pop on the shelf as we could have. And that went through to Impulse, too. Um, Impulse was right at the cusp of us having artists that we were hired, so it was sort of halfway between prototypey art and good art. Uh, and everything since then, I think, has been a lot better. And we've actually started to make games that look as awesome as they are. Um, so if I could do anything differently, it would be to borrow a stack of cash and hire an hmm. artist for those things. But who knew? Well, you've republished innovation with new graphic design. Is there any possibility of revisiting any of your earlier things that... Uh, Either ones you just mentioned or anything else? It's possible. One of the problems with that is, even though I love those games, the market has moved so fast towards both new mechanics and um, a desire, <laughs> a consuming desire for something new, that I don't think a reprint could do well on Kickstarter at all, especially if it was Fireball. I'll, oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the shade of it all. <clears throat> Hey, listen, that game is fun. You get to knock marbles onto other people's marbles. It's true. So let's talk about uh, a game you didn't publish for just a brief moment mm -hmm. uh, because it's probably one of my favorite games of the past five years, and that's Sidereal Confluence. Oh, yes. Or the full title, which my partner would insist that I <laughs> say, Sidereal Confluence, Trading and Negotiation in the Elysian Quadrant. Uh, I'll give you a green cube if you just say Trade Empires. <laughs> I call it Trade Empires in, in, in my local group. And I, I mentioned this for two reasons. Number one, you were the one who introduced me to the game. Mm -hmm. And number two, I'm aware that you were at some point in the running for publishing it. And you did not end up publishing it. Yes. Um, so, part one, I've actually grown a little bit on the name Sidereal. Um, really? It's still awkward, but it is unique. If I say Sidereal, and I say it out loud... One of the problems is that reading it, it looks like side reel. Uh, people immediately know what I'm talking about. And that does have some value. I think there was probably a middle ground title somewhere. <laughs> better. Um, but yeah, so uh, Sidereal Confluence or Trade Empires or Cube Bonanza, which was briefly called, was never actually called that, <laughs> um, was a game that was prototyped and shown at the Gathering of Friends for a number of years. And it's a game that I saw lots of times, and Tao Seti, the designer, is a really nice guy. And I approached him in a little bit of the same way that I talked to Carl initially, which is, this isn't exactly in my wheelhouse of publishing, but I will help you get this to market if you can't get it through anywhere else. And this was, oh, maybe three years ago? I forget. Where he was actually really starting to talk to other publishers about it. And he was like, yeah, I'm talking to to Zev, who was to just moved over to WizKids. And I was like, cool, no, no, if, if that works out, then absolutely go with it. Um, if it doesn't work out, I ran the numbers. We can do this. It'll be crazy. Um, and we'll do it, and we'll see what happens. So I was sort of like the backup publisher in case he didn't get uh, somebody who was more accustomed to dealing with tons of bits, because that's what that game needs. Right. 
what would you have done differently, if any, with respect to the published design? Say, oh, sure. Blue Sky, say you had enough budget to, to, to do it in a way that you would want to. Solid gold pieces. <laughs> Notice I didn't yeah. say unlimited budget. but uh, Reasonable budget. Well, we had stretch goals for triangular pieces. So, <laughs> um, a good part of the game, you know, I wouldn't change the game much at all. I might have done a little more development of the end game, which... I still feel it's the one place where it doesn't feel quite done. Um, there's that that last turn where you don't get to use that you don't get to use everyone else's technologies, and it, I don't know something to do with there. It's probably the the, the game wise thing I would have changed, but even without that, it's still a fantastic experience. As far as the game itself, in terms of components. Um, Probably would have put more cubes in the box. Um, one issue I've had with playing is that if you go beyond seven, you really run out of stuff real quick. Um, and for a game that touts itself as going up to nine, you're in rough shape <laughs> if you need to get all those cubes out. Um, using the five X's for things gets real annoying real fast. I probably would have taken a very different approach to the graphic design. Um, that's just personal preference. People know what my preference for graphics is, and it is usability above all else. That's just something that I differ with most of the industry with. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what can I say? Well, let, let's actually segue to some uh, another way in which you differ with most of the industry, and this is actually the first thing I'd like to talk about with respect to your, your recent projects with One Deck Dungeon. Mm. So all the characters are relatively realistically proportioned women. This was... How did that decision come about? Well, um, we had had the first art drawn. Um, I said to Will, you know, we're going to draw the warrior, make her... I, I, I don't even remember what our specs were for her. Um, but it was just, you know, we want a warrior, sort of broad-shouldered, strong woman type, but without any of the cliches. Like, don't give her a stupid armor, the form's top or whatever. Um, and it came out great. And uh, we did the rogue next with similar direction, you know, because the rogue is actually very covered. I think really only her face is showing. Um, and she has this really cool outfit. And at that point, I'm like, well, what if we just did all of them as women? And uh, Alana and I and Will were all like, well, nobody's ever done that. <laughs> so we were like, well, then we have to do it. And that's <laughs> how it started. Um, so we did the five heroes in the first set uh, with that in mind. And at that point, we had drawn two white characters. And I'm like, it would also be great if we could get two other um, ethnicities depicted here for diversity. And we wound up with, you know, the archer and the mage and the paladin, all of which are non-white. And that was cool. And we're like, we could tout this, or we could just put the Kickstarter up and see what happens. And we did. And things happened. So talk a little bit about the reception. So, for the most part, people were very happy about this. Um, both during the Kickstarter and after it, and in a lot of the lead-up uh, to the Kickstarter, people were thanking us. They were very happy that this is a thing that had happened. Um as far as I know, it was the first board game or card game to feature an all-woman ensemble cast. You may be right. There had been a few that had won, um, but even most of them were 
the sort of sexualized barbarian type, if anything. Well, let's not leave out uh, Tanto Cuore and uh, Barbarossa, right? <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Uh, it was, you know, women as objects more than as right. characters. Um, and, you know, we're just like, you know what? We have an opportunity to do a thing. Hey, we're going to do it and do it right. And I was very happy with the, the results of the art. And then, yeah, most of the reception was great. We had lots of lots of private messages and public messages of support. Um, lots of women saying, oh my god, you've done this, this is so great, uh, I can't wait to play this game with my daughter. And then we got the doofuses who were like, but this isn't fair, and <laughs> how can I play this game with my son? My least favorite email, but also my favorite email of all time. Uh, and that was both an email and a comment and a private message on Kickstarter uh, there are one or two people who were just like, I'm going to make my point to you in every single forum possible. Uh, and one of those included, and this is well after the Kickstarter was done, a one-star Amazon review, which was of that same variety. Lovely. Uh, purportedly by a mother saying that she could not buy this game for her children because they just wouldn't play as girls. Um so I posted a picture of that review. I didn't link to it directly because I didn't want the person to get harassed um, on Twitter. It's my most retweeted tweet ever. <laughs> we sold Amazon out of the game that day. Lovely. Uh, my contact agent person was like, what happened? Why are all the games gone? And I was like, well, here's this picture of an image. And <laughs> So, yeah, it, it, for the most part, it's been very positive. There have been a few people who continually badger the point and they think that it's not fair or that it's not right or that it's just as sexist to have no men in the game. There was, and since we've gone to the uh, realm of Steam, we've encountered a whole new type of individual. Of course. Unfortunately. Um, and there's one person who just went totally bonkers off the wall, making sure that we knew that he never played Metroid because it was a woman. I'm like, Really? You're missing out on one of the best video game series of all time, and also no Tomb Raider. So, like, oh, all right, you didn't play Tomb Raider or Metroid, I understand. So, talking about One Deck Dungeon, how did that design come about? So, dice are fun. I like dice, and One Deck Dungeon is the culmination of a design that started in about 2008, which was called Epic Quest. And I think you played it. I did. Uh, <laughs> it had items tucked under your character card, and uh, there were several different versions of that, plus another game called Circle of Mana, which totally wasn't going to be a lawsuit, um, <laughs> which involved rolling dice to summon monsters and do things. Uh, I eventually took some of that that became Sixus, but the notion of a dice-based dungeon crawler where you're putting dice onto the monsters to show that you're beating them um, was something that was in the back of my mind that whole time. And then I had an opportunity to work on it again a couple of years back, and it you know slowly came together. We had a prototype version that we showed at Gen Con 2015 uh, that we sold 100 copies of that people liked. Then we refined it at uh, Gen Con 16, and I'm getting all my years mixed up, but Sometime in there, we kickstarted it, and everyone liked it a lot. Um, but uh, the big design turning the corner point was when I realized that 
it wasn't about filling up the entire card to show that you'd won the battle. It was a simplification of the idea that you're going to fight this monster and you're going to win. And whatever you don't cover up were the consequences of what your fight was. So you didn't get this one spot. That meant you took two damage while you were beating the dragon. And that was a really cool matching of theme to mechanic that I liked a lot. So it's had, there's the base game, there's been an expansion, and now there's the digital implementation, all of which seem to be doing very well. Uh, so I assume there's going to be more content going forward? Yeah, um, we are looking at more expansions, both digitally and physically. One thing that I'm actually working on right now is the uh, often occasionally mentioned One Deck Galaxy, which is a space-themed offshoot of the One Deck Dungeon concept. Um, and that is something we're going to be demoing at Gen Con this year, probably pretty similar to how we demoed the dungeon at the first time we showed it at uh, Gen Con a few years back. The idea for One Deck Galaxy is that you are a newly spacefaring race of aliens, and the cards are going to be the things you encounter in space, and it's not going to be the same in terms of trying to fight everything, um... Instead, the dice are going to represent your advancement in energy and mechanics and yeah, mechanics, uh, materials and diplomacy, and those are the ways that you'll use to add cards to your empire. What else is uh, what else is being developed in the fertile imagination of? So uh, the other big project we're working on right now is the Thousand and One Odysseys, which uh, has been in development for four or five years now. Well, it takes a while to get up to all yeah, 1,000. Yeah, you know, there was many Odysseys, yeah. not just one. We tried like 400 Odysseys, and people were like, that's not enough, guys. Too few? My, maybe you should add a few more. Um, so 1,001 Odysseys is our choose-your-own-adventure, but not choose-your-own-adventure trademark, because that, that's now a thing, too. Um, board game where you are humanity, and you have been thrown... Well, you're not all of humanity, you're just one ship, called the Odyssey. See, it, it works in here. Um, and your ship has been thrown into a new sector of the galaxy unexpectedly through a Stargate. It may or may not close behind you, leaving you stuck with all these wacky aliens. And uh, it is the stories of your adventures with these people. Uh, exploring, learning things, making friends, making enemies. And it is not a legacy game per se, but it is a game with many episodes. What we're aiming for is a shorter experience than, say, your Time Stories or your Sherlock Holmes, uh, or even the Choose Your Own Adventure trademark uh, board game, where you're actually just sitting down for an hour, hour and a half, doing a, a story with friends, and one of the key things you want to do uh, is make it so that any four people can sit down and play the game after your first session. So you're not stuck in the current legacy problem of how do I schedule my specific four friends to play Charterstone for the next eight Wednesdays or the next 12 Wednesdays and oh you're not you're gone for two weeks oh no and so and so is going to camping for all of August you want it to be a game not a social obligation yep uh, so that is one of our big design points right now um, it's rewarding if you play them all but it's not necessary and that is something we'll be showing off at Gen Con this summer also. Anything else? Um, what am I missing? So, 
We've got one deck Galaxy. We've got Thousand One Odysseys. Uh, Phoenix Syndicate is coming along nicely and should be done for Gen Con this year. I don't know if it'll be for sale there, but it should be uh, kickstarted sometime between now and then. And that is a game that has come a long way in a very long time also. Uh, that game is 10, 12 years old now. Yeah, I first played it more than 10 years ago. <laughs> but uh, it's cool. It's a lot more about um, action selection and enhancing your actions as the game goes on than it used to, which is a mechanic that I've enjoyed in some other places that I think is ripe for more cool ideas. So the the development process that you have for a lot of your games is actually one that I haven't seen repeated in many other publishers, whereas a lot of other publishers put something to market, and then if they want to fix something, they'll release a second edition or something. But what you often do is produce a limited early print mm-hmm. run of something, of 100 copies or so, and use that for early adopters who want to give, who, who, who might or might not give feedback, as the case may be. Right. And then iterate off of that. Is that something you plan on continuing doing going forward? Or Yeah, I mean, uh, it's very likely we'll do that with Galaxy this summer. Um, and I find it just to be a tremendously valuable tool for three different reasons. One, um, you get testing. And as long as you put it at a reasonable price point and give them an actually working game, people aren't too upset about that. But... You really get to see in the wild what people do with your game and how badly they break it or don't break it. Two is marketing, because all of those people talk about the game, and they're usually core fans that will evangelize for you when it comes to Kickstarter, and that's really nice. Um, It's just a side bonus. Uh, And the third thing is it shifts some of the art needs uh, forward Mm to your prototype run, but there's still more to do after that. So you get a more distributed timeline of when you need all the art done for the entire game. Is there anything that you wish that board gamers knew about publishing? Um, <laughs> there's a lot of things I wish that other publishers knew about publishing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have seen more memes and jokes and silly things about the old adage that it... If you want to make a small fortune in the games industry, start with a large one. I'm just like, go, no. Uh, people come into games with some weird, weird expectations of, of how the business side works. And I think it's because a lot of the people coming in don't have business training or business experience. And I wish people understood more that yeah, you can make games and do well doing it. It's it's not an industry where you have to lose money. And where this is most prominent is on Kickstarter. The number of companies that I see that do enormous Kickstarters, which are essentially at a loss, is staggering. Why are you running a million-dollar Kickstarter that is going to lose you money? Don't, don't do it. You know, I'm sure that if I had priced One Deck Dungeon at $15... We could have had twice as many backers. We might have cracked 500000 750000 But we made money on the Kickstarter because that was the goal of the Kickstarter was to fund the run and set it up to succeed as a project after that. And the fact that people undersell and offer free shipping or very low-cost shipping or 
subsidize international freight in ways that are both borderline tax fraud and, <laughs> you know, just otherwise bad business um, are troubling because they create the expectation in the, in the customers that everyone should do this. You know, hey, we saw this other company do this. Why aren't you doing this? Do you not care about your customers? And I'm like, no, but we are a business. You're like, I love making games, but we do this for a living and we need to price things appropriately. And probably the, the biggest thing I wish that people, both publishers and non, knew is how the numbers worked and that, you know, we're not trying to rip you off. We're just trying to make sure we can pay our bills and employ the people that we have to make great games. You also mentioned Kickstarter and you were a successful publisher before Kickstarter and you've been using Kickstarter now. Is it the case that your first three course is pretty much always going to be Kickstarter going forward? Yeah, it's almost stupid not to, um, to be honest. Unless you're producing something very small or unless you are producing something licensed where you're going to be like, it's a Star Wars game, don't need to kickstart that. Um, it's just a very nice uh, platform for advertising, if nothing else. The one thing that I am trending toward, unfortunately, is that, you know, we just did a Kickstarter for Wu-Tai Mountain, the expansion for Matainai. We did it U.S. only. Um, I noticed. Because, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, because it's such a tiny game. And because uh, you hate Canadians. Well, yes. I mean, we just beat you up at hockey, so. Hockey's well, a sports ball thing, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, it's a yeah. very large ball on the ice okay. that you sweep as it goes towards the other opposing goal. While shouting at the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Because the logistics are just so much easier. Uh, we did try doing the shipping hub thing in Europe for the last uh, One Deck Dungeon Kickstarter. It was a miserable and awful experience. And with the... I forget what the company's name was in Asia that just scammed somebody out of a whole pile of product. Uh, yeah, I, I commented on that on the podcast. It's yeah. uh, Borders uh, Game Cafe okay, or something. Okay, sure. That's very scary. It is. Because if somebody outside your country steals stuff from you, your legal options are so small. You'll end up holding the bag in terms yeah, of yeah. rep and, and profile and customers. All those customers still need games. Yeah. Um, you're never going to see a return on your lawsuit. Um, and you're probably going to lose money on the lawsuit. And that's even... I wouldn't even want to sue somebody in the UK or Germany in the EU where... Uh, to be blunt, laws are more amenable to copyright or stealing violations. If I had to sue somebody in Asia, I would just not even bother. Hmm. Uh, and I think that's what the, that company wound up doing. I think they just shipped out and lost all that money. Um, obviously, I'm not expecting companies to outright steal things, but with the absurdly low prices they are trying to offer for shipping, I would not be surprised at all if one of these fulfillment hubs went bankrupt in the middle of operations while things are being shipped in, and at that point, if they go bankrupt and they're holding your goods, those goods are quite possibly going to their creditors because uh, possession is nine-tenths of the law. What I'm trying to do with Kickstarters going forward is keep as much of the control in-house as possible mm. because I don't want to be the next headline. Um, and that will result in some decrease in sales on Kickstarter. But frankly, 
because of the costs incurred, we don't make that much money on international Kickstarter copies anyways. Um, unfortunately, over the past four or five years, the rates for shipping even small packages just to Canada have become untenable. You know, for a game like Wutai Mountain, that's $12 uh, or $15 retail, we're kickstarting for 12 To send it to you in an envelope in three, 400 miles away is almost $15. What is that? <laughs> and it's two to send it the same distance, to, to send it to California, which is four times as far away. This is dumb. I was only joking when I was complaining about it being a US-only Kickstarter because as a Canadian consumer, I know how much international shipping charges. And I, too, am completely baffled as to why company... Well, I understand why they do it because they don't want to deal with complaining customers right. and they don't want to be perceived as having a bias or, or, or hating some region of the world. But I don't understand... Well, I first of all don't understand why anyone gets in the game, board game publishing industry to begin with. But I certainly don't understand why someone on top of that wants to get in, involved in the international fulfillment game. No. Which seems like a nightmare piled on top of it. And the amount of money that gets lost, the amount of effort that gets devoted towards dealing with some consumer in Brandenburg or much worse, some somewhere like uh, Rio de Janeiro or yeah. uh, heaven forfend St. Petersburg or what have you. That just seems like an un unrelenting nightmare. So I certainly can't blame you for for effectively saying that, you know, for now we're going to focus on the American market, and certainly for the first-run products. Well, and that's a shame. It, what we're The other part of that is that we would much rather just send it straight to our distributors in Europe and in Australia because they're faster at this right. than we can be. I mean, this happened with Forest of Shadows. We had the game for sale in stores at the beginning of January. Backers didn't see it until, you know, the end of January, early February. Well, that was your personal fault. Oh, yes. Yeah, I yeah. personally delayed the copies. Mm -hmm. um, but no, we shipped them to the Fulfillment Center first. They were in post-Christmas busyness. They were fulfilling Gloomhaven and two other things. And it just got delayed. And I'm like, well, I wish you all had just been able to go buy it at the store. Because you would have it already. I don't know a whole heck of a lot about how it is dealing with established distributors, but it certainly seems like it's a much smoother transactional relationship. It is. And uh, part of the problem, though, for most Kickstarters is that they're not an established publisher. I can go to Esdevium and Enigma over in Europe. I'm sorry, Asmodee, Europe, UK, and Asmodee, <laughs> Norway. No, really. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, and say, I've got this new game coming out we've kickstarted 5,000 copies, how many do you want? They'll be like, we want a couple thousand. As opposed to, you know, some other Kickstarter that's like, hey, we sold $20,000 worth of games. How many do you want? They're like, none. Because for these distributors, there are just so many games coming out that they can't even screen them all, never, mean, never mind stock them all. Uh, and if you're factoring in international uh, shipping on top of that, it's not even worth it. Um, so I, I sympathize with a lot of the, the smaller publishers who can't do that. But my goodness, when we get to 1001 Odysseys, which is going to be a game that weighs a lot because there's lots of books and writing and cards, there's, there's no way that I want to say, all right, and backers in Europe, you can get it for $80 plus $15 shipping? I'm wildly guessing what it will cost to ship this game to you. Surely that will go well for me in the long term. Um, you know, my, my point is going to be, hey, if you want it in Europe, 
pre-order it through your stores. We're going to Kickstarter backers in the U.S. We're not going to do any funny things where there's exclusive content. That's one of the other things that, um, and the reason that the distributor model works for us is I absolutely refuse to put game content behind a Kickstarter version. Um, We've done little cosmetic things with it in the past. Done with that. I want to produce one version of the game, the version that everyone gets. Because I've been on the other side of that. I picked up uh, Roll Through the Ages, the Iron Age, the second one. And it was missing half the game. And I'm like, what the hell is this? And somebody was like, oh, it's a Kickstarter reward to have the board that is literally... Like, yeah, no. Um, Don't want that. Don't want that in any of my games. So we're not doing it anymore. What do you make of the increasing trend that I've observed of products being not only just having Kickstarter exclusives, but being Kickstarter exclusive products themselves? That is far more reasonable um, and is a sad indictment on the state of our retail industry. Um, When you get down to it, most publishers get about 32% uh, of retail for games they sell. Um, that is not true for us because we do not use a fulfillment house. So we're just getting things straight to distributors. Uh, so it's a little bit better, but that is very low. Um, and I can definitely see it being more appealing to just make the game, make the number you need for Kickstarter, not have to worry about whether or not the distributors are going to buy it or not, and know what you're profiting based on the number you print. No dead stock. No dead stock, no warehousing costs. We make it, we ship it out, it's done. There's a good value in that, and especially for heavier games. Uh, and I mean physically heavier. <laughs> right. Not, uh, not games that take a long time, but things like Seventh Continent, things like Gloomhaven, they break the normal distribution model because of the physical cost of shipping those games to your fulfillment house, then to the distributor, then to the stores, because each of those places is taking a hit off of the normal, you know, 10% they take, because they're not, it it costs more than 10% of the cost of the game to ship it to whatever location. Um, And if that shipping cost is only paid once from the publisher to the customer, it's tenable. Uh, And I think you're going to see more large games do this. It's something we've considered for Odysseys, but I think it's still going to be light enough to work in the normal normal sense. But you're open to the prospect of someday doing something like that if... Yeah, no, if, if, I, if I ever produce, um, we'll call it Boomhaven, uh, <laughs> an explosive new design, <laughs> <laughs> then, uh, you know, you bet I'm going to do it customer only because of its 400 miniatures, all handcrafted. Totally coming, 2022. (laughs) Don't sue me, Isaac. I understand why some products are Kickstarter exclusive, because just picking on one recent example, um, Mythic Battles Pantheon, which was originally intended to go into retail distribution, but then they decided, no, we can't expect any store, even on the online one, to open up an entire new product line overnight with dozens of SKUs. So it certainly seems like, as is inevitable, as the market grows, there's increasing specialization. Uh, in, a, in a market that's already pretty specialized. You know, we're not even talking about the RPG gamers or the, the mm-hmm. minis gamers and all that, that kind of stuff. 
Do you, as somebody who's uh, spent a fair bit of time in uh, local game store environments, I don't know how much uh, how much you've been doing that recently, but back in the day, I knew you used to uh, be slightly more involved. Mm-hmm. What do you think their role is going forward? Um, so, <laughs> yeah, I will say that the way local game stores, and let me not have my Tom Vassell moment where everyone will hate me for saying something reasonable, um, I think they're in trouble. And I think they desperately need to retool what it is they do. Right now, so many local game stores are surviving because magic is inexplicably still a thing in 2018. <laughs> Not that I think it's a bad game, I just, I can't believe it's still going on, and I can't believe that the, that it has survived so long, and that so having declared, will end eventually. having declared you didn't want to get everyone mad at you, you didn't want to trash magic. <laughs> oh yes, no, no. I like magic. I like Richard. He's a nice guy. He made a good game. Um, that he says is broken. Well, you know. <laughs> anyway, it's moving on. It's a little on. broken. Uh, but, for a lot of these stores, board games aren't what's making them money. Um... And for others of them, they have wisely moved on to other uh, things that help out, like the Mox Boarding Cafe and uh, out in Seattle. They sell food. They sell the experience of playing board games. And that's really what I think a lot of the board game stores need to do. Unfortunately, that's not so easy. Mox can do what it does because they have some amazing spaces. I mean the physical stores they're in. That can, you know, accommodate all these people. Buying real estate here in Boston to do that would be a nightmare. And that also can't sustain the kind, the, the sheer rate of releases that, that, that we're seeing. No, but I think, uh, and I wish this had happened a long time ago. I wish there had been a way to associate your Kickstarter purchase to a store, mm. to give that store a cut, and to have the fulfillment go through that store. Right. Like if if you were if you were a Kickstarter backer and you were also a member of you know Mox Seattle or of Pandemonium here in Boston, and that meant that every Kickstarter purchase you make gets shipped to that store, that store gets a five percent cut, and and everyone would save money too. Everyone saves money because the shipping's cheaper. Free promotion, um, social events, all manner of things. Yeah, right. Or even you know something like that. I think I wish that it happened and it didn't. Uh, and the ship is more or less sailed for that to happen. It would appear often you don't even see retailer pledges anymore on a lot of Kickstarter projects. No, because the problem with retailer pledges is that you have stores going in for a product they can't sell for a year or two years or maybe ever. Right. And that's that's bad business for a store. You can't you can't be in there for money you're not getting back, and you can't tie up capital that you're not getting for a long time. Um, but I wish there had been a way for that system to work because I think that would have been a great thing for the local game store industry um, but I think that more stores need to go the cafe route they need to have people coming in because it is a fun place to be and unfortunately in some places there are toxic atmospheres both from some of the players and also from some of the staff and that has largely gone away at least locally you know we've been lucky that pandemonium's always been pretty great staff um, but I know there have been other stores elsewhere that haven't been so friendly. But I, I think a lot of this is you know, representative of the larger retail problem that America and the world have right now in that stores are becoming less necessary. Whether it's through Amazon or somewhere else, you can just get the thing 
You don't need to go look at it. And I think if you're not clothes or food, you're hard-pressed to convey your value as a retailer right now. And board games is just one more spot like that. Hmm. So it sucks. I hope it gets better. I also wish we could go in a time machine five years ago and make all these connections work. But we probably want to do other things with our time machine. (laughs) (laughs) It's all about priorities. Well, you know... (laughs) Well, thanks very much for your time, Chris. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been fun. I can't believe you just asked him that, Mark. That was pretty embarrassing. Walker, you've already announced you do not listen to this podcast. (laughs) So I don't know why I bother. (laughs) But I just thought that was a very, very interesting interview. I like when he said that thing about that that other game that he did. Yeah, so thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at thegamesyoulike. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. We read absolutely everything you send us, whether we want to or not, and we'll get back to you if we can, whether we want to or not. Thanks again for tuning in. A reminder that we are running our contest for a full copy of Massive Darkness until June the 1st, and we hope to see you again soon. Take care. Thank you for listening. And if you like this, tell a friend. See you next week. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.